This is Bold Dominion, an explainer for state politics in a changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. Well, we're in May now. It's been about a month and a half since everything started closing and authorities urged social distancing. The novel coronavirus continues to circulate around Virginia and around the U.S., even as Governor Ralph Northam is moving to reopen certain kinds of businesses in the next week or so. But work has never really stopped for people working in essential industries. Healthcare, of course, but also grocery stores, fire and police services, construction, buses, meatpacking, and more. That doesn't mean the work is always safe. Around the country, there have been more than 150 labor actions like walkouts and strikes, protesting conditions that the workers feel are unsafe. That includes several labor actions here in Virginia, from workers in the Naval Yards and Hampton Roads to poultry plants in the Shenandoah Valley. Why should we put our lives, say a a clerk at a grocery store, why should I put my life on the line for what, $8 an hour? And I mean, this is a mobilizing aspect of things. That's journalist Peter Galaska. We'll hear more from him in just a few minutes. First, we turn to Sarah Vogel's song. She's a reporter with the Virginia Mercury, and she's written several recent articles about the COVID-19 outbreaks in meat processing plants. In Virginia, we have concentrations of these plants in the eastern shore and also in the Shenandoah Valley. During this pandemic, these plants have become coronavirus hotspots, and cases keep climbing. The workers at some of these plants started to become concerned that the numbers that they were hearing from their managers were below the actual case incidents in their plants. And they have started to voice those concerns. Um, Subsequently, um, the Northam administration also began to become worried. And Northam, with the governors of Maryland and Delaware, had asked the federal government to step in and provide some help. And subsequently, the CDC sent teams to the region, and they are now investigating just how extensively COVID-19 has spread through these plants. What are we finding so far uh, as far as the, the spread of it? Um, it is a little difficult to say because the Northam administration has interpreted the state code to mean that they cannot provide specific information about how many cases are in a given facility. But having said that, we can see that there are a large number of cases in Accomack County, which is where both of these two chicken processing plants are on the eastern shore. Um, Hospital administrators at the single hospital on the eastern shore have also told reporters from the Washington Post that there are about 180 cases between those two facilities. Um, That was the count a couple of days ago, so it is almost certainly higher at this point. What are the workers saying? Uh, How are they getting attention? Um, The workers have started to get attention, I think, over about the past two weeks, mostly, um, largely by speaking to media. Um, There's been a lot of fear that I've heard from employees about speaking out publicly because they're afraid that they'll lose their jobs if they're seen to be criticizing um, any of the management in the plants. And workers at these plants tend to also be immigrants um, coming from more vulnerable backgrounds in a lot of cases. Is that right? Yes, um, there is a high immigrant population that work in the plants. Um, they're also particularly, I would say, in the Eastern Shore area, isn't a huge glut of other jobs for people to turn to. What are we What are we seeing as far as um, the response from from management and from the companies to the concerns of these workers? 
What I have heard from company spokespeople um, who have also not provided large amounts of information is that they are mostly focusing their response on CDC guidance to provide personal protective equipment for workers. Um, most of the large companies have been rolling out uh, like plastic shields that they can put between workers on these lines who have traditionally stood very close to each other. I mean, certainly within six feet of each other. Um, but the rollouts of those shields and measures have been, you know, they take time to happen. And so some of the workers that I've spoken to have said that maybe one department or several departments in their plant might have those shields in place, but other departments do not. There have been groups that have urged the state to step up and for the administration to take a more proactive role in protecting workers in these plants by passing emergency regulations that can be enforced um, rather than just relying on guidelines. All of the federal guidance so far in poultry processing plants as it relates to the coronavirus have just been guidelines, which means that the companies are encouraged to follow them, but there isn't actually a penalty or necessarily a framework in place to assess their adherence. So we've got um, the issues of these plants having these hot spots of COVID-19 infection, but then now federal orders requiring that they stay open. I mean, this is a, a going to be a, a tricky balance to maintain worker safety while, you know, having the, the long arm of the federal law <laughs> telling it to, to do its thing. Yeah. And I think that that is a concern um, that I'm hearing from some advocates is that they are want to make sure that there is a balance between ensuring that the industry stays open, but also ensuring that worker safety and worker protections are not sacrificed to that aim, that there is also a framework built in there to make sure that these human beings can remain safe and that their communities can as well. That's Virginia Mercury reporter Sarah Vogelsong. You can read more at virginiamercury.com. Stay with us. We're back in just a moment with journalist Peter Galaska. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. Have a friend who's trying to figure out Virginia state politics? Tell them about this show. And then subscribe in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever fine podcasts are served up. Bold Dominion is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. If you're in the Charlottesville area, drill down on Charlottesville news analysis with our podcast, Charlottesville Soundboard. And then check out our newest member of the collective, Charlottesville Quarantine Report, which looks at how our town and the state overall are responding to the COVID-19 crisis. Check out these and many more at virginiaaudio.org. Well, over the last month, there have been hundreds of labor actions around the country, whether it's walkouts, sickouts, strikes, largely wildcat labor actions without union backing, just workers who feel their conditions are unsafe. That's included at least five labor actions here in Virginia, from poultry workers outside Harrisonburg to bus drivers in Richmond to workers at an assisted living home in northern Virginia. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area who's covered Virginia business, politics, and news for four decades. He explains what these labor actions mean in Virginia. So there's several things going on here. First off, to be clear, to be sure, Virginia is a low union state for many reasons, and it's by design, and it's been that way for many years. 
uh, in terms, I think the latest figures I've seen, federal figures, uh, Virginia is like maybe four plus percent unionized, which is way low down near the Texas level. So that tells you something that the union and union workers are not very strong to begin with. We have a right to work state, which uh, means you don't have to join a union if you don't want to. And the business classes have provided themselves for decades, especially in, in, in like textile workers and cigarette workers and people like that, for not having unions so that they can be exploited, that they will make less money. So, I mean, this has all been going on. And now that you've got kind of an emergency situation where workers in some ways held, hold the upper hand because they're needed, they're, they're you know, kind of wielding their muscle, what little muscle they have, a little bit. Is it working? Are, are, uh, you know, when there have been these labor actions, are businesses responding and saying, yeah, we're, we're going to make those changes? Well, I'm not so sure it's working here because we don't have any really um, massive strikes yet. We do have one indirectly, okay? And um, if you go back to Smithfield Foods, which was a, a major uh, food and pork producer down in southeastern Tidewater area, um, they were for years one of the largest, if not the largest, pork producer in the country. In the United States, they're chiefly located in the Midwest, like in South Dakota and Iowa. And in the last few years, they've been bought by a Chinese group called um, WH Group, which is a, a giant Chinese food maker. But there have been real problems, serious problems, especially in Iowa, especially in South Dakota, where you know very quickly uh, dozens and dozens of workers there were exposed and got the uh, COVID-19 virus. And some plants have been shut down. It was sort of a catastrophe because these are very, very large-scale pork and other producers. And there have been, there's been talk that in the near term we might see shortages of beef and meat. Uh, meanwhile, here on, on May 1st, last Friday, uh, there's uh, been a, a lot of uh, labor action, sort of coordinated labor action around the country happening with Target, Instacart, Whole Foods, Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, right, exactly. And that's, that's not really new because I remember when, when the whole thing, when the pandemic really started rolling away, um, I know that Amazon workers, for example, it's clear that Amazon is going to be playing a critical role in this because they deliver. And they actually, it means you don't have to go out into the store and, you know, and you don't have to expose yourself. But at, at the same time, you can get the virus for several days, apparently, from the surface of an Amazon, say, Prime package. And, of course, there were big complaints early on, especially in New York, about Amazon not providing workers with uh, serious enough sanitation and, and not social distancing enough, et cetera, et cetera. Those complaints are still going on. Amazon has started a big public publicity campaign in various newspapers to say that, it, oh, no, we're, we're doing it okay. And um, other ones are Instamart, same thing. Uh, a number of companies have really been wondering what they're doing. And at the same time, things are starting to open. Yeah, they are. Uh, let's kind of segue into that. Governor Ralph Northam, who's been the sort of uh, cautious, steady-handed doctor in all this, um, is now saying, you know, let's, let's, we can go ahead and reopen a few things, like, like dentist offices and maybe hairdressers, mm-hmm. where there's not a lot of people at once. Um, take me through what's going on and how Governor Northam has, has been performing. Well, he was criticized greatly, uh, especially by people on the right, um, for, you know, being... Every, everything from incompetent to a fascist, which is kind of a 
that's kind of too bit of a, of a range. You know, you can't be all those things. Um, but in any event, he did get a slow start after compared especially to Larry Hogan, the Republican governor of Maryland. But recently he's been very judicious and he's been, gotten a lot of high praise for, you know, not going too far. He's not shutting down the borders to out-of-state people with out-of-state license plates or anything like that. But he's been, you know, cautious. And he did, for example, um, stop hospitals from having elective surgery and did shut down things such as dental parlors and hairdressers and the like. Well, he, I think it's a, as, of, as of this Friday, he's reopening hospitals to elective surgeries because actually some hospitals were actually, incredulously, uh, they were laying people off at the time of the pandemic because they just did not have enough you know, regular routine, normal, you know, uh, elective surgeries and procedures going on. We're losing money. That's coming to an end. Um, dental offices, I believe, opens Monday. Mine opens because I, I have a little tooth problem that I hope to get soon, fixed soon. I couldn't do it for about a week. <laughs> and, um, and also, I mean, I think everybody looks pretty shaggy. And so I have a close friend who's a hairdresser and I know she said that when she finally gets to open, it's going to be nuts. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of pan-up stuff coming, and this does not mean it's over by a long shot. Right. And and I know uh, here in Charlottesville, the UVA Health System uh, did pretty <clears> severe <throat> layoffs and furloughs and, uh, and, and salary cuts for everybody. I mean, it's a lot of hurt across the system. They're losing $3 million a day. So um, I don't even know if opening back up for elective surgeries is going to uh, stop that outflow of, of bloodletting. Well, this is the whole heart of the problem. Whether you have a W-shaped um, recovery or a V-shaped recovery, what kind of, what is it? I mean, tell me what um, that means. What, what do those letters mean in terms of the shape? Well, that would mean that that a W would be that you you go way up, and then of course after you peak, you come way down again. You know, you 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 start you start being real active in the economy, and that's too soon. So you go up again, and then you go down again. The V is sort of the same concept, but a much quicker slower comeback and then all of a sudden you shoot up in the number of infections um i've been reading a book which i should have read about a month and a half ago uh the influenza book by uh, john barry it's, it's about the it's, it's really the kansas flu it's not the spanish flu but it was in 1918 and all of the things that the united states and the rest of the world had to go through that and it's almost like a mirror image it's like you're, you just change the dates and it's the same i recommend that to anybody who wants to get an ebook it's great what's the title um, of that again the deadly influenza or something like that and it was written about maybe 15 years ago by john m barry who's a known historian writer and it's about the 1918, what was called the Spanish flu, but it was actually started in Kansas at some army camps during World War One, and quickly spread throughout the world and came back in waves, by the way. I mean, it goes down, then it comes up, goes down, goes up and uh, killed a lot of people. <clears throat> and it was a couple of years altogether, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was 1917 to 18. It kind of died out in 1918. Yeah. I want to... Uh... Talk a little bit more about Ralph Northam. You wrote in Style Weekly, sort of assessing his uh, his performance uh, as governor through all this, and and I liked how you opened up that article, talking about how this is probably the biggest challenge any Virginia governor has faced since you know school desegregation. Yeah, I believe that. I mean, you know, who, who am I to say that? No one really, but still, I think that's true when you think about it. Um, to go before that and you have obviously the civil war that's the biggest thing but in modern virginia history i think you know the whole idea of how the state mishandled um integration with massive resistance was a very 
um, momentous kind of decision that really, you know, colored the state's politics for decades to come. And I think this is another case where you're going to see how Ralph Northam does this depends on the speed and the um, efficacy of the recovery and whether this will happen again. And, you know, since there's a dearth of leadership by President uh, Donald Trump, all the state governors like Northam are having to really come into the breach, step up to the plate, all that stuff. And, and so far, he seems to be doing a pretty good job. And uh, he has a great deal of critics. I mean, the howls from the right wing are pretty strong. But the fact is, he's got really good. He's only been one poll so far. Um, and But he's done very well in it, 76% approval. And that's, I know people do go up in, in times of crisis, but that's still pretty good. And he has had a very, very successful legislative career so far because he has been able to manage the first truly progressive legislation in years here. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about, kind of ping back to that, that part on federal-state relations. You mentioned you know, Donald Trump's pretty terrible mm-hmm. mishandling of the crisis from, from the national level. And it's almost like the federal government, they're, they're, they're trying to like squeeze it out so much they can be drowned in a bathtub and it just leaves all the leadership and, and any kind of uh, sort of social welfare to the states at this point. Let me give you an example of what happened. Um, a few weeks ago, Northam signed a popular piece of legislation that would require background checks on handguns and would also um, restrict them to one purchase a, a, a month, which is a number of states do that as well. Well, Donald Trump sent out a tweet storm saying, liberate Virginia, protect your Second Amendment rights. And at the next day, um, Northam was on a national TV show and they asked him about this. And he says, now's not the time for Twittering. We've got better things to do. And that was just a great answer. So um, if only more people would do that, we might be better off. You know, in America, since the New Deal, there's been this kind of compact between the federal government and the states. And and the New Mm -hmm. Deal was an era when the federal government got a lot more powerful, a lot stronger, Mm -hmm. um, and a lot more concerned with sort of the social welfare of citizens. Um, And, you know, there there was kind of an agreement in a way that that when states got in trouble, when states needed something, the federal government was Mm -hmm. there to help. Um, That second half seems to be eroding pretty rapidly under the Trump regime. What, what do we make of this going forward? That's a great question because it goes back to World War II because, um, you know, there was a great, great deal of federal spending throughout the United States, especially, especially in the South, which at that time was a pretty poor place with Pellagra and, you know, Jim Crow and everything else. And yet you had, you know, thousands upon thousands of dollars going into the military sector, into building, you know, camps and naval bases and airfields, et cetera, et cetera. And, and this kind of you know, carried forward with FDR, then, of course, with um, LBJ. And even when I started in journalism in North Carolina in the early 1970s, I mean, the whole issue in these little counties was how do we get federal money? How do we get federal money? Because it was a pretty poor part of the state. And so this this has gone on and on and on. This has sort of been the the agreement. And now Trump is just sort of ending it. And um, he's saying, this is not my responsibility. You know, you do it. And um, so it's kind of an anti-federalism or new form of federalism that I, I quite don't understand. But I don't know how long. You know, hopefully Trump won't last that long and they'll have someone more reasonable, an adult in office. and Maybe we'll, we'll really find our way then. But you're raising interesting questions. You know, big government is now good again. Regulation is now good again. You know, 
states are now powerful again. I, I don't have enough time to figure that all out, but there's some very fundamental changes in the last, say, 40, 50 years. I mean, let's circle it back, and I don't want to get too uh, uh, too much into conjecture, but I mean, if we bring it back to some of the workers and some of the people on the ground here uh, in Virginia, what's this kind of shift going to mean? Well, it's an interesting thing, and I think part of it is, in fact, regional, because um, you know, just in my own life, I, I've worked mostly in the South, um, although I've worked in the Midwest, in the Northeast, and overseas. And there's always been this feeling in Virginia and places like North Carolina that you're lucky to have a job. And uh, that's changing. You go up, you go to Chicago, where I once worked, or New York City, they don't, it's a different attitude. I mean, you know, actually, labor unions there are respected and um, they're considered part of the, the partnership. Here they're not. And um, so it's just going to, you know, as more Virginia changes further, more people move in and more people feel empowered. Like, why should we put our lives, say, a, a, you know, a clerk at a grocery store? Why should I put my life on the line for what? Eight dollars an hour. And somebody's making a lot of money selling extra food. And I mean, this is a mobilizing aspect of things. They could keep it under control. The bosses could some time ago, but maybe not anymore. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. He's been covering Virginia business, politics, and news for four decades. Thanks to him and also to journalist Sarah Vogelsong from the Virginia Mercury. She spoke to us via Skype, and you can read more at virginiamercury.com. My name's Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Huge thanks to our producers this week, Ariane Ballou and Sabrina Moore. Find this show online at bolddominion.org. Go ahead and subscribe. It's just a click away. Well, keep on social distancing, and I'll talk to you again in two weeks.